I'm Aaron Armstrong. I'm Pete Moran. And I'm Marcus Jones. And we love to watch. We love to watch. Space cops use their AK today. I guess it wasn't a good day today. Nope. <laughs> nope. God damn. <laughs> try, try it again. Because AK don't, don't just rhymes in... with day. Yeah, yeah but don't so, put yeah. in the today. Part. Don't put the today after. Okay. We love to watch. Space cops use their AK. I guess it wasn't a good day. Today was like one of those spy dreams. Didn't even see a berry flashing those high beams. No helicopter looking for a murder. Two in the morning got the fat burger. Even saw the lights of the good year blimp. And it went ice cubes up pimp. Drunk as hell but no throwing up. Halfway home and my page is still blowing up. Today I didn't even have to use my AK. I gotta say it was a good day. Peter, have you ever heard that song before? Have you ever seen me before? (laughs) 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 This is the second week of uh, hard taglines. Um, We love to watch. We love to watch space. We have to watch space. Oh no! Cops I'm gonna. You don't need to do it again. I'm gonna use that take, and then we're gonna go right into me berating you for <laughs> never having heard the song before. I know the song. You've had enough chances, Pete. I know Iced Cube. <laughs> <laughs> I know Freezing Water. <laughs> uh, all Anyways. right. Marcus, welcome back on yeah, We Love to Watch. Thanks for uh, having me back, guys. It's uh, been a long time. You know, it was hard to Shouldn't turn it down you. because you were like, look, I'd love to be on the Ghosts of Mars episode. Uh, you know, a movie that to, to round out your first uh, John Carpenter month, a director I know both of you enjoy. And you're going to kind of defend one of his works that really is considered lesser by many, many people. And and I'm going to berate both of you for having that opinion is basically what you said to us. And I don't know how we could turn that down, Marcus. <laughs> well, <laughs> to, to be honest, uh, I hadn't seen this movie in a long time. And I actually do remember kind of liking it and watching it again. I kind of fucking loved this movie. Um, but I basically oh. just wanted to make Peter sad. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, I I appreciate the, uh, yeah, I was going to say, I appreciate the emotional honesty. Usually people play a shadow game with trying to make me sad uh, over the course of, like, multi-year relationships. So thank you so much. <laughs> no, I'm upfront and overt. <laughs> <laughs> That's great, Marcus. Uh, I, I may be one of the more negative people on it. I still really liked it. But I do I do feel like the movie has problems. And ironic, oh, yeah. not ironically. <laughs> oh, yeah. But I, I do think that the movie could have been fixed with just two major changes, not to a masterpiece, but to a very good movie as opposed to what I would call, which is just a, a good movie or a pretty good movie. Uh, can I guess one of them? Yeah, shoot. Would it be a complete another pass on the script because the dialogue is atrocious? No, actually. So the dialogue is atrocious, but that's, 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 that's <laughs> not, that's not one of my, that's not one of my two things. So that's one of mine. <laughs> uh, well. We're going to get into it, Marcus, in just a second. Uh, so anyways, but before we get into it, Marcus, you haven't been on the show since last December. Why don't you tell us three things about yourself, hopefully different things? Oh, man. Uh, I kind of forgot to prepare anything for this. I mean, um, I, that's the ideal situation, Marcus. Oh, okay. Because I remember uh, 
At one point, I, I insisted that if you guys ever did uh, an episode on an Ernest film, that you would allow me to be your guest. And I think I did come up with three Ernest-related things about myself. So maybe I can just do that. <laughs> sure. Okay. Um, let's see. One of my favorite stories that my grandmother told me from when I was a kid was the one time she got to meet Jim Varney. Uh, but no, she worked for a book company and went to some kind of event uh where he was speaking at and I, d I don't know why i made her tell me the story over and over again even though she really didn't have much of a story and just like oh yeah he told some jokes he was quite nice and i made her tell me that like 50 times because i was a huge Ernest fan growing up uh let's see second thing uh also Ernest related uh, a few years back i went to a screening of Ernest goes to camp at an alamo draft house in austin uh that was attended by director john cherry who co-created the character with jim varney and also directed uh most of if not all of the movies i think um and yeah i there was a trivia contest i answered a question right and got an original storyboard from Ernest goes to camp from the director that's apparently worth six hundred dollars that's awesome so how does six hundred dollars feel uh, uh kind of okay uh it's a watercolor painting of Ernest fighting a plunger in a bathroom so yeah that's, that's, nice. a, that's a keeper that's a keeper yeah, that's a definite keeper yeah uh, that's the, one of my favorite scenes from that movie i assume if i have seen it <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's the very first scene actually so that's uh, about as far as you'd probably yeah, make it i love oh, cold i love i love first scenes <laughs> So many good first scenes in movies. Name one, Aaron. Name one first scene. Oh, God. There's so many have credits and words on them. <laughs> fonts, like, all oh, sorts of fonts. Can't even concentrate on the scene. I'm reading so hard. It's great. It's like practicing the skills you learned in elementary school. <laughs> uh, uh, it's kind of a home run for you. So, yeah. Third fact. This is the longest and most anyone has ever let me talk to them about Ernest. <laughs> uh yeah so so thank you so much marcus for sharing too much about the Ernest movies like i said i've never seen one but you know i hear from you they're good so <laughs> that's all you need i mean i've never heard that from literally anyone else i've ever met <laughs> let's bring it down a little bit let's get real sad uh, and that sounds sarcastic, but that's really what's about to happen. Uh, because for our opening segment today, we're, we're going to actually talk about George Romero, who, uh, as of this recording, it is Tuesday. He passed away this last Sunday, uh, age of 77. So, I mean, a ripe old age, but also like, he'd always felt like he basically was 77 since, uh, the early eighties. Uh, mm -hmm. so it felt like he could go forever. Uh, and still, still was, you know, making some movies here recently with, or at least in the early 2000s. So we, we do a lot of horror movies on this show. We're big fans. Um, I think we might, we'll talk about this near the end. I think we may fast track, a, uh, in the spirit of the John Carpenter month that we're wrapping up today. Uh, we may fast track a Romero month. Uh, but you know, Peter especially really wanted to share what, what Romero meant to him as a, as a movie fan, as a horror fan. Uh, and 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 uh, and I think the rest of us are going to chime in as well. So, Peter, why don't you open up that big old heart of yours? <laughs> Thanks, Aaron. Um, and let the evil yeah. come out. On Sunday, I lost one of my true heroes. George Romero was somebody that I discovered when I was in sixth or seventh grade. And I just was trying to figure out, like, what kind of movies I liked uh, because this was, like, before I had like gotten really interested in girls and well before I started smoking pot and drinking and like George Romero was somebody that I was just like, I just saw this, this really evocative 
cover for Dawn of the Dead that's like holographic. I think it was Anchor Bay or Blue Anchor. Oh yeah, Blue Media, that like holographic DVD yep. cover on the on the shelves at um, Fry's Electronics. And I saw this this cover. Kept seeing it, seeing it, seeing it. And one day it was on sale, and I brought it home. And that was like one of the most formative film experiences in my entire life. I watched the DVD like a hundred times. It was the first movie I ever, a adolescent, teenager, adult, I just kept sharing with people and people kept loving and like people would ask to borrow the DVD and I'd be like, hey, you're going to give that back, right? Because like, like kind of scratching my neck, like you're going to, you're going to give me my movie back, right? Because I was so attached to the vision in that movie. And I, and I realized later that I saw Night of the Living Dead on public access when I was way younger, but I didn't even connect the two. I started reading everything I could about it and like George Romero got me interested, not just in horror movies, not just in genre movies. Like that's, that's obviously a big part of the picture and got me away from just mainstream movies. But he also, in interviews and in his sort of attitudes about humanity and his um, big, broad characters, got me into the concept of filmmaking. Uh, Watching Dawn of the Dead and Night of the Living Dead in particular, they felt like such homespun efforts, but like homespun efforts done by a master who knew what he was doing. And he like convinced me that like from a young age that like, if I just learned more about film, if I just like kept building this love, this like pure love for movies that uh, I too one day could uh, make something as great as this. Like, and in interviews, George was always such an inclusive dude. He like loved his fans and he was like, he loved talking about zombies. Like the way he said zombies, he's like, Zom- zombies. Like that's, it's like a iconic thing. Like he just loved, he loved dealing with fans. He loved like making movies and he like, uh, more than Spielberg, more than, uh, I guess Tarantino, uh, Romero was was a dude who, who grew all of aspects of filmmaking for me. He grew both love for the filmmaking side and for like weird movies, like angry react, angry movies that are reacting to their times and movies that are bloody and gory and outsider films and like movies that are made on a small budget. Like he was the key that unlocked everything. And now he's gone. But like not really gone, as the the cliche goes. Like he's, <laughs> I yeah. That's that's kind of that's kind of the broad strokes of it, guys. That was really beautiful, Pete. Yeah, it was, it was beautiful. And and it's funny because Peter, you mentioned you wanted to have this conversation or at least get a chance to to talk about it. And I was like, let's just do it on the show because we have hell if we can talk about the presidential election. And negative things. Let's let's take a second to honor someone who's always been someone that we plan to do months on. And obviously, we've talked about his. I mean, a lot of his movies are seminal, and he basically invented a genre in the same way that you know Bram Stoker invented kind of the modern ma- uh, vampire myth. George Romero invented so much of what we see today from uh, from video games to television shows to to movies and all that stuff. That really does all originate from him but uh but peter one thing i haven't told you and why you know when it came when it comes to romero is that i can actually say that he is the reason that i like horror movies and we talked about this last week that i was like kind of action horror those types of genres i was kind of skeptical of any movie that did them with like any sort of sincerity which is why 
I gravitated towards uh, Escape from L.A. over Escape from New York. And it's because I thought that, you know, their tropes were were so basic and so played out that anyone that approached the the material without a wink was was probably just doing kind of a lame version, the kind that like people that think they're they're smarter than they are in high school like roll their eyes at. And and you know, part of that is just because like I was raised on like that Evil Dead 2 horror movie. Like that's the kind of stuff I like that was that was still a horror movie, but like understood the ridiculousness and played up in it. Uh, that's why I liked Escape from LA as an action movie. It's you know, some of it could be that like I saw the Scream movies before I saw the the Halloweens and the Nightmare on Elm Streets and the the Friday Thirteenth. So like I was already seeing the movies that were making fun of these tropes before uh, before I actually saw the movies that had inspired uh, and and created this love around these movies to to do it. So the first so I saw Dawn of the Dead. It was the first Romero movie I saw, and I kind of expected it to be something that I respected, but again, it just that kind of straight horror. Even though this is horror with an like allegorical message horror, which as I've since learned not to side path too much, is like 75% of all horror movies. Uh, uh, but <laughs> Horror movies are very political. Yeah. So, and I kind of was expecting like, okay, I'll see some cool zombie effects. And I, I wasn't expecting for it to be like a moment in my life that really like diverged how I approach these movies. We talked a lot about how there's these movies you watch in high school, like the Robocops and the Aliens. That it's like the first version of this that you've ever seen and it's done so well and it's like made for you that it becomes like a favorite that will never be topped. Dawn of the Dead was one of those movies. You start saying dumb things after you see it in high school like this is as good as like movies now. Like this is – you know? Because it was. It didn't feel like an old movie I was watching. It didn't feel like, you know, something that, that hadn't caught up to the uh, the satire and the winks and all the stuff of the, the horror movies I was enjoying. And yet it was still so fucking good. And something about that really, like, changed the way I thought about horror movies, changed the way I thought about, like, over-the-top uh, gore and practical effects and started noticing that stuff. He is very much – responsible for for like my switch into like horror is a dumb genre and the only good movies the only good horror movies are the ones that are aware it can be a dumb genre to horror's fucking great yeah that's wonderful aaron uh, he was this he's this grandfather figure of horror not just like that he uh you know fathered a lot of genres and he basically horror would be an entirely different genre today if it wasn't for romero actually horror might be very paltry today if it wasn't for romero because he created the zombie genre movie after movie i think he's diverted uh the genre and diverted people's expectations of the genre over and over again and like he'll be He'll be greatly missed. In recent interviews, it's also amazing because he'll be like, he'll be like sniping at like, I can't get a movie done because, you know, these three things and like, you know, I'm getting an old, I'm becoming an old man. So I feel like I got to get one last movie in. And like, that's one of the great tragedies of his, his death now. But that is very sad that he just couldn't get a movie made for the the last few years when like the biggest fucking things on TV are like The Walking Dead and Survival Survive the Walking Dead and like all these zombie movies constantly coming out and zombie TV shows are fucking huge. Like you figured people would eat up 
a new zombie movie from Romero, but yeah, this still couldn't get it made. Kind of similar to John Carpenter, who we're going to talk about today, just like kind of having a hard time getting movies made, kind of done with the Hollywood system and stuff. Um, but yeah, no, I, I love the dead films. Uh, I'm a little bit of the opposite of how Aaron is. I, I'm usually more drawn to like the originals like the the more serious ones the the one that they you know just made with nothing but passion just trying to do the because like evil dead 2 i think is fantastic and it is one of my all-time favorite films but like i saw evil dead first and that drew me in because it was more serious it was more straightforward horror same thing with not well Love i saw, I saw not, to, not to interrupt your point but i saw army of darkness first so that tells you exactly where i was at oh, <laughs> oh i need to see like more a vhs copy of evil dead from walmart uh, without knowing anything about any of the movies and then that's what introduced me but night of the living dead i've seen that movie i love dawn of the dead too that's probably the best out of the original trilogy but i have seen night of the living dead at least four or five times in theaters and have watched it so many times it's just infinitely rewatchable and just you can see just the passion and it's so weird because it was just a random grouping of people that just like pulled money and like hey let's make a fucking movie and let's give this zombie kid a try um but yeah no extremely sad that he wasn't able to get more made you know the one thing i did want to you know it's it really sucks that so many of his films are kind of out of print which is which is such a common thing for these these horror movie veterans that made these classics which are in most cases still in print and then all these other movies that are either like actually really good or interesting or like at the very least worth preserving uh, are so difficult to watch i had that problem with brian usna recently like <laughs> trying to get his his filmography is just a disaster to try to find to it's watch so hard but uh, it sucks that Romero has the same issue, uh, not just with stuff like The Dark Half or uh, a couple other ones, but fucking Dawn of the Dead is like really – is really hard to watch right now. I'm hoping that if one mildly – like if someone – I hope those so, – some fucking greedy asshole tries to take advantage of this and actually releases it so that people can see it because it's, it's insane to me that like – a movie that I call one of the top 50 of all time is always on the top 10 horror movies of all time. It's probably one of the most influential uh, horror movies of all time, even more so, I would say, than Night of the Living Dead. It is like basically, unless you're going to spend 60 bucks on a used DVD, you can't watch it. But what I was going to say uh, before I sidetracked myself, <laughs> being very frustrated about Dawn of the Dead's a uh, situation, a of rants. And, yeah, and, and that, and that, uh, and that I didn't pick it up on Blu-ray when I had the chance because I didn't know that the chance was like of all movies, it's like all of a sudden being like, what? I can't get the Alien movies. They've been selling. They've been giving those for free at Best Buy for ten years. It's gone. Now. <laughs> but uh, I was gonna say. So while while you're probably talking about Romero movies, you're recommending Romero movies, and obviously the, all of them are worth watching to some degree, uh, just because he is a master in the same way that we said about John Carpenter. Uh, even the lesser works, you can learn something, as Peter always likes to say. I'll also. So I actually want to do a left field recommendation because it speaks to what Peter talked about uh, as him as the person. Uh, and him as someone who just feels like this warm grandfather of horror that he would give you a hug even though he both made bleak mo- – he, he made very bleak and gory movies but also uh, movies with these very bleak worldviews. Uh, and that's Birth of the Living Dead, which is a documentary that came out uh, a couple years ago about the making of Night of the Living Dead. Features a lot of participation from him, which is always great because it really – it's an amateur documentary, but it's still extremely – 
extremely both informative and also just like really gives you the sense of this enthusiasm that this guy has talking about uh, this movie that he like pulled together on, you know, uh, nothing but like arm grease. And that's a thing that people say, right? Arm grease. (laughs) Elbow grease. That sounds right. I work on mechanics. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) You work on mechanics? I work on, yeah. I know machine. (laughs) I know machine. (laughs) I know all about the tools, the turning, the the hammering. The beating Um, things to make it work. Yeah, phonetically, I know machine sounds like you're an angry robot who doesn't want to admit that he's a robot. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but yeah, it's really great. And it's, um, he's so enthusiastic, like, even when he's talking about stuff that angers him, he just has a smile and he's like dripping with this like enthusiasm to tell the story to two nobodies who are making a documentary. And that's not meant as an insult to the people making the documentary. It is just he just loved talking about his movies, talking about movies, talking about horror. And he had a great sense of humor about himself. He, he and, and which is so interesting too compared to who we're talking about this month, because John Carpenter I love John Carpenter. He he seems angry. And one of the reasons that he's really angry is this movie we're about to talk about in any minute. And this was the movie that made him go, I'm done with Hollywood. And when he decided to come back, no one wanted him. Well, to be fair, he made a pretty subpar movie when he did come back. Well, true. But that's why he kind of like he tried to come back earlier. And at that point, people were kind of done with him, which also echoes what what Peter was saying with Romero, where which, by the way, did did sorry, uh, Aaron, <laughs> real uh, did did Romero do a Masters of Horror? No, I think so. he specifically he there's a there's a reason that I forget why, but there's a reason why maybe he had a feud with somebody. Why he, uh, he was he was invited to because I figured he would have been in, invited. So the the story behind it is that Mick Garris organized all of these. And by the way, Mick Garris has a really good horror podcast that's only like has like 12 episodes right now where he interviews horror legends. It's sort of a, a weird behind the scenes reaction to Masters of Horror a decade later, but it's called Postmortem. Uh, I recommend that. But uh, Mick Garris has uh, he invited all these Masters of Horror to dinner and some of them ended up not making episodes. Guillermo del Toro was there and he apparently came up with the term Masters of Horror. And Romero was invited, but he didn't show up. Maybe he was busy at the time because this would have been when Romero was actually like making Land of the Dead, Diary of the Dead and Survival. So maybe he was actually busy. But a lot of these guys, Don Coscarelli and Stuart Gordon and such, they weren't that busy. Um, (laughs) So maybe maybe this was just weird timing. I would have loved to have seen him do a Masters of Horror episode because Carpenter's last two Masters of Horror or Carpenter's two Masters of Horror episodes were super fun. I love Cigarette Burns and I think Pro-Life is like fun, trashy. So I was just I was just going to say to kind of wrap up my thought is that this did happen to a lot of those 70s and 80s horror icons where, you know, even like Wes Craven, who's no longer with us, they had his big return to horror. We talked about Stuart Gordon not being able to, you know, these people weren't busy. Joe Dante and a lot of them seem really angry about it. I'm doesn't mean their movies aren't good. It doesn't mean that I wouldn't be that angry if I was them. That they just at some point were making garbage that they knew were garbage or left the business or just weren't asked to do stuff anymore. And, and the same thing happened to Romero. But he would never, ever, ever give that away in any interview he ever did. Like he did not seem bothered for, by it. Instead, he seems like one of those guys who is like, holy shit, I got to make this stuff. That's awesome. 
Yeah, he loved he loved people, and he was a guy that like like we were saying like he had like angry films like. But yeah, so I could talk about Romero forever. The reason that I wanted to address this, especially in the middle of Car- the Carpenter Month, is because. I think, and not to put too much weight on our Ghost of Mars episode, uh, is that I want to appreciate uh, the less works of John Carpenter even more is because John Carpenter is my other Romero. He's my other living idol that like he was somebody that like made me think that movies were something that worth obsessing over and that these small moments were something that like were worth the time. And Carpenter uh, is a a living, as Aaron pointed out, a little bitter dude who uh, I think uh, needs to be given another shot. And especially, I think everything pretty much after what Mouth of Madness gets written off. Yeah, and and it's entirely unfair. Well, fuck, I'd say the fog gets written off. I mean, I, I you know. I yeah. think a lot of Carpenter gets written off. We were going to do The Fog this month, but we ended up coming up with four options that we think were more written off. So we just ended up going with yeah. one. Um, but still no memoirs of an invisible man? Uh, no. Not a, not a great movie, had... Marcus. No, uh, I know it's not. I'm just saying, if you're talking about written off, there you go. Yeah, especially. <laughs> we'll, we'll, uh, we'll probably uh, find a way to talk about that movie, but not, not in this episode. Um, Peter, Peter, not to add, uh, to interrupt with levity, but I want to make you a shirt that says, my other Romero is a carpenter. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that'd be so sweet. That'd be so sweet. <laughs> um, okay, so I just kind of, kind of final note is that we'll miss you. George A. Romero, and also we're trying to appreciate living filmmakers while they're still alive, because uh, in recent days I've seen a lot of people being like, Martin's amazing, I just saw Martin for the first time. The Crazies is really great, I saw Crazies for the first time, I'm like, guess what? George would have loved to have fucking heard that. And I'm not trying to guilt people into being like, my filmmaker is getting up to 70, I better watch all of his movies. I'm saying that in the sense of like, don't just write people off and be like, oh yeah, that part of his career is shitty. When you can actually like sit and think about and talk about what good they've done in their career and like kind of track the trajectory of why their career went a different way or went the way that they wouldn't have wished and maybe you don't wish either. But yeah. Yeah, and and also just, you know, the one second build on that, Pierre, is that Carpenter and Romero have both directed movies that are like icons. Like, not just like, they're not just movies, they're cultural touchstones that everyone else stole off of. Night of the Living Dead and uh, Halloween. And I think the problem with having one of those movies, because not that many people do. Maybe there's 50 directors that have like these basically like these movies that became like an archetype of a movie that everyone else took, you know, pieces of and then made whole genres of movies with. And and what happens when that occurs, everything else be- automatically becomes a lesser work. Even even their other masterpieces become lesser work because there's only one Night of the Living Dead and there's only one Halloween. And, you know, those movies are not just... You know, it's it's just like Looney Tunes. Like every other character on Looney Tunes is a lesser work to Bugs Bunny because that <laughs> is the one that changed everything and like that everyone knows. Like and that doesn't mean that Daffy Duck and Porky Pig and and the Roadrunner aren't great. It's just how can you stand in the shadow of of Bugs Bunny? <laughs> everything they've done is worthwhile just just from the sense that they are the ones that that made it. And it's always worth 
following these masters of horror, pardon the the, the <laughs> double use of the phrase, uh, down whatever rabbit hole they ended up going down at some point in their career. And I'll say that for their worst movies, including uh, The Ward for Carpenter and, based on what Peter says, Bruiser from George Romero. Yeah, Bruiser is Bruiser's not really worth watching, um, especially right so, now while we're trying to uh, conjure up warm memories of, of George. Watch, watch one of the good ones. Uh, so, so the last thing I'll say that's been hinted at a few times, or not, depending how this cut goes, uh, <laughs> is is uh, uh, Peter and I have uh, have taken this opportunity to kind of redefine our plans for November. We we kind of kept ourselves an open month in case something struck our fancy, uh, and it, it's definitely going to be Romero. We haven't decided what Romero yet. Uh, lesser works, just do the dead dead movies. Hey, hey, Aaron, hey, Aaron, do you want to commit to the dead movies? Kinda, yeah. I want to do the dead movies. I think let's that'd do, be good. Let's, let's fucking do the dead movies. We're always okay. So we're, we're all yeah. Pamby Pamby. We're like, let's not do a yeah. Escape from New York. So here's yeah. yeah here's what we're doing. You don't know what we're doing in fucking September. You don't know what we're doing in October. But guess what, motherfuckers? <laughs> Got real angry uh, all of a sudden. Uh, I like it. We're November not booked. No guests. None of you are welcome. No, I'm just, <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm recording eight this, hour episodes you know, each. Oh my god, we're gonna get so many messages. Uh, but what we're gonna do is we're gonna do all four. De- it's gonna be a Thanksgiving deadathon, and we're gonna do Night of the Living Dead. We're gonna do Dawn of the Dead. We're gonna do Day of the Dead. We're gonna do Survival of the Dead. Just fucking kidding. Obviously, Land of the Dead and Diary Watch. of the Dead, of course. No, I'm, no. I'm making that what? promise for you guys. You you are going to do Diary of the Dead. It's going to be an excellent episode. I mean, That's going to be the secret bonus episode. Look out for it. Do you think this is live content, Marcus? We can take that right out. <laughs> I, I will bring it up uh, subtly. I, I will whisper it into my microphone, and I will bring it up so much to where you will get tired of editing it out. <laughs> uh, and now that he is a ghost among men, let's talk about the ghosts of Mars. <laughs> Let's do it. second recap or now that we've rebranded alternate, <laughs> alternate taglines tag and peter peter not to add pressure to you in front of our audience but i think you wrote this one in advance for the first time oh and by wrote this one in advance i mean uh i wrote it in here and now i have to find it again um oh it's right here uh the alternate tagline for ghosts of mars is in space no one can hear you culturally appropriate <laughs> so wait is that appropriate it's culturally culturally appropriate, appropriate. <laughs> no one can hear you culturally appropriate okay there we go that uh, makes more sense yeah there's probably a reason why these guys uh that do voiceover don't do it six beers deep <laughs> I, I think that's true for most things that are jobs <laughs> yeah mo- most jobs you try not to go in six beers deep <laughs> So. I, I honestly think that my move to like want to po- podcast more and expand this network is like me my 
subconscious being like, you can be an alcoholic at this job. <laughs> Sorry, honey, it's my ninth podcast for the week. Like, <laughs> your computer's in the other room. <laughs> it's fine. I'm I'm writing material for five second recap. So, uh, yeah, so 90 second recap is in the far distant future, 2176 A.D., uh, there was a guy named Desolation Williams, pretty different from you and me. Uh, he committed a bunch of crimes and was accused of slaughtering a lot of people. Uh, and that's where, because I did not write this in advance, that's just going to go away. But he's a bad dude, and they send in some good cops to get him. And what do they find? Everyone dead. Desolation Williams sitting in a sitting in a cell. Not ready to help, as it turns out. They hang out. Nastasha Henstridge, Pam Greer. Now they got Desolation Williams, world-renowned criminal. Everyone knows him. Shut the fuck up. People know him. And they think he'd be <laughs> taller. They think he'd be taller. <laughs> Every protagonist in the world that people have heard about always thinks they're going to be taller. They're not. Yeah. I wish I was a little bit taller. Wish I was a Snake Plissken. Wish I was a Desolation Williams. You know the song. Wish I had tw- yeah twenty inch rims. I could baller. <laughs> Um, that's right. <laughs> First, it's all ski, all skilo all the time on it. First magazines full of blanks. Um, so, so yeah, so they they find out that these ghosts of Mars, appropriately, uh, have been released from this mine, and they are taking over this uh the, the mining people, I guess you'd call them. Uh, and now they're ghosts of Mars, and they're kind of like zombies, but smart zombies. Uh, and they, they like push like metal into their faces and it's basically the spirits of these old people that used to live on Mars that have taken over and are killing people. They they have to escape and get back to civilization to warn everyone. Uh, the only two people that survive are Desolation Williams, played by Ice Cube, Natasha Henstridge. <laughs> I uh, like the emphasis. Ice Cube. <laughs> yeah. It's not Ice Cube. Uh, it's Ice Cube. Yeah. And the group that says "motherfuck the police." Um, <laughs> speaking of cultural appropriation, um, yeah. So they survive and they warn people, like, "Hey, there's all these ghosts that are out there." Uh, and the uh, the tribunal, who actually has started as a flashback, because they've been interviewing Natasha Henstridge's character, they're like, "Okay, you're crazy. Go to your cell." Because there's no ghosts and we're not going to stop the mining. Blah, 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 blah. And then the end of the movie is the town uh, on fire. And Ice Cube comes to Natasha Hentrich's cell and said, I guess we got to saddle up again. Or something equally dumb. <laughs> uh, and that's basically it. It's it's really a movie where 60 minutes of it is kind of the same few scenes repeated over and over again. And and I am saying this that I am I am slightly positive on this movie. I don't love it. I don't. I definitely don't hate it. I I'm, I am positive on it. So I'm going to talk about my personal experience very quickly, and then I really want to get to why I think this movie doesn't work as well as it could have. So my personal experience is just I saw it in theaters, 2001, and I thought it was okay. And I don't even think I was that into like John Carpenter at the time. Um, I at best I think I probably hadn't seen Halloween. I don't think I'd seen The Thing. I'd seen Escape from L.A. and Escape from New York, maybe. Tops? Well, no, definitely. Definitely I'd seen those two because I saw those two in high school. But I don't think I'd seen anything else. So it was just a – it was actually playing at the Dollar Theater 
freshman year in college. We used to go there all the time, and it was just a movie to see at the Dollar Theater. And I'm like, okay, that was fine. And have had not seen it again till this showing. But I didn't dislike it. I know it's very disliked. Uh, and I just I just remember it feeling a little generic, um, a little tonally confused. And watching it again, I, I liked it more than I did when I was 19. It, it feels like it's a compromised product. And we're going to talk about that. It absolutely is. But I think even even as just a, hey, let's let's do a John Carpenter genre exercise, I think it was very fixable. As such, it's it's kind of like an interesting artifact and has some great moments and a lot of eye-rolling dialogue and choices. Yeah, I mean, um, what I will say is that this movie is the sort of movie that I defend with a barrel of salt. <laughs> and it's a movie that I, I, when I'm watching it, I greatly enjoy it. And it's a movie that very much like Land of the Dead and Doomsday and Silent Hill and Constantine are these sort of like movies that like cater to my interests so much that like the fact that they're an imperfect beast is kind of overall irrelevant to me because the the experience itself is delivering something that I need in my soul just like I need it I need my zombie space western with demons on the surface of Mars and terraforming and shit. Like, I need that uh, so that I forgive a lot of the movie's mistakes. I can recognize them. And it's a big thing about our show, recognizing the mistakes, but trying to decide whether or not they drag down the final product. And I think that my experience with this movie is that I saw it when I was a forming film fan and I always watched it uh, as a sort of, like, it's a dumb action movie, but it's a dumb action movie I like, which uh, we have a lot more to say on it than that, because this would not be a very good podcast. If that's all we had to say about it. The The movie appealed to me on all those levels I just mentioned. And it's a film full of promise. And I think that every year that goes on, it kind of gains a little bit of power because it's like no longer in the like concurrent modern conversation it's becoming more part of like the exploitation past which means like we get to view it through a different scope well and also uh really quick before marcus shares his history with this movie uh it's also we're looking at it from a different scope that we kind of talk about a lot in this podcast which is like at the time it was released if you were a carpenter fan i'm sure it was okay this was good this was not good let's see what he has next and the answer turned out to be nothing he has nothing next so I would say in a lot of respects, this is like the last John Carpenter, John Carpenter movie that we ever got and how it was received at the time and the way that people saw it in 2001. At the very least, it's much different now because there was no next. This this was it. And so at the very least, you're, you're right, Peter. It's going back to it's kind of like it could be called Assault on, on Mars Precinct 47. <laughs> like it's yeah. really going back to a lot of things that he liked. But Marcus, why don't you share a little bit uh, your history with the movie and what you thought of it this time? Uh, well, that's the thing. I, I definitely uh, didn't see it in theaters or anything like that. And speaking of Peter's point about it feeling more like a – a retro exploitation movie at this point because you know we've gone ahead in years that's 
works for it, but it is also one of its biggest faults is that it feels like a very 2001 oh movie. Oh my god, so much. Yeah. Specifically with the like fart rock new metal music throughout it, like that that's one of the biggest things that bothered me about it. Um but no, I just Did it bother you that much? Like, the anthrax stuff? Yeah, it just it didn't work for like I really enjoyed the opening score. Um I thought that it does was great. Start- it doesn't have a good beat at the beginning, a good Carpenter thing. Sorry to interrupt your, your Yeah, yeah no, yeah, no no problem. But yeah, no, I like that opening part. There were a couple that were okay, but a lot of it just sounded just generic, like, fart rock stuff. And just, it feels like it's from 2001. Or it feels like it just could have easily also been from, like, Ice Cube's XXX sequel or something. Like, that kind <laughs> of mentality. Also, speaking to Aaron's point, because it feels like the last Carpenter movie Speak in a lot it. of ways. Uh, it, it, I think I maybe forgave it a little bit more. And this does have a lot going for it. It has a stellar cast. Um, it has yeah. really awesome K&B makeup effects that I'm a big fan of. Uh, I think the sets are really cool and interesting. It has some good miniature work. Like... Other than, like I said, the the music kind of bothered me a bit, which I can't believe I'm saying about a Carpenter movie, um, <laughs> where he he was very involved with the score. Um, that and a lot of the dialogue just doesn't work, and I'm not sure if it's because of the cast not delivering it quite right. Because I feel like if this movie was like a Snake Plissken Escape from Mars movie, and it was Kurt Russell saying these kind of cheesy one-liners instead of like Natasha Hentress and Ice Cube. I might be a little bit more on board because they just kind of have that connection and Kurt Russell can do that maybe better than Ice Cube can. So so that's a perfect transition into my two big problems with the movie. This time, knowing about the background, that this was supposed to be Escape from Mars and there was no Desolation Williams, that was supposed to be Snake Plissken. And so much so that he is like... Desolation Williams, uh, played by Ice Cube, is play- is wearing the exact same thing that uh, the Snake Plissken is wearing at the end of Escape from L.A. Great like, name, though. I have to say, I love the name Desolation Williams. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's 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 a name that it's a good name. It's it's clearly a stand-in for Snake Plissken because Snake Plissken's a great name. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know all that stuff when I watched it in two thousand one. So this watching it this time gave it a different lens. And one of the lenses is that. I feel really bad saying this because here you have Ice Cube, person of color, leading a John Carpenter movie, 2001 with a decent budget, and I like Ice Cube as an actor. Him playing that like Ice Cube role I think is a big detraction for this movie. Wow. I really disagree, but continue. I, I would have liked – it's not that I even didn't – didn't want Ice Cube in the movie. Like I, I was, I was like, oh, is he gonna play like a Snake Plissken type? Did I forget that he's like not doing, uh, you know, his normal, his normal like standard character of like being the smartest guy in the room and sarcastic and and he doesn't. And I, I kept picturing this movie with. I'm not even saying Snake Plissken, but someone doing that kind of less showy more subdued performance of a character like that i think it works better i'm not saying like oh one of the ways this movie could be better as if it was escape from mars but i i think i think that kind of like cool collected criminal who doesn't give a shit about what these cops are saying and is not actually trying to prove himself and maybe it's just because i watched it so close to escape from new york and escape from la but i was just like man this is just everything here feels wrong with the type of character he's playing. And then, Marcus, you actually already mentioned my second point, too. Having now watched, you know, the, this is my fourth John Carpenter movie in a row. 
I kept picturing all these scenes without that terrible, terrible music. <laughs> terrible. Did the music so really bad. bother it's you guys so it's, much? It's, it's, it's it really so bad. bad. It, it didn't bother so me bad. at all at any point in the movie. And the entire time I'm watching this, I'm like, you know, having heard a few John Carpenter scores recently, I'm like picturing like, okay, what if instead of like this, nan and need it, you know, like Limp Biscuit's going to jump in any second music. Instead of that, it's like the doom doom. Dump, dump. And like every scene got better in my head doing like that kind of like. I would agree that the scene would fit better with the don't 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 like the good John Carpenter shit. Yeah, I would 100 percent agree with you guys that it would be better, especially uh, in the context of his career to have a synthy, cold, thumping score, especially after he did all these movies that reminded people of westerns and then all of a sudden he does a what is kind of closest he's gotten to a true western uh and he decides to make it like a thrash movie like a, a rock movie he wanted to make courtney love the lead of yeah natasha which Henstridge. i'm also kind of happy that didn't happen i, I think natasha henstridge is way better than i think courtney love i mean it's of course hard to tell without seeing the performance but i really liked natasha henstridge in this movie i like natasha henstridge as well i think that a lot of the criticism of her is kind of misguided um and there are means to mis to to criticize her for one i mean if you expect a super active protagonist who feels like they're not just a witness to the movie that they're like actually like an active part yes for sure because she just happens to be one of the survivors um that makes sense but like natasha henstridge i think her cold depressed nature in this movie and the fact that she's kind of pushing people away in a in a sense she's doing just what kurt russell is doing just like you know, not as charming yeah. as Kurt Russell. And I think that there's a sexism. And I'm not saying that every criticism of Natasha Henstridge in this movie is sexist. But I am saying that every single criticism of Natasha Henstridge in this movie is sexist. Um, <laughs> well, and she, well, and also, you know what? It's it's unfair to judge her, too, because, like, she, she delivers some bad line readings of terrible lines. And that's why I didn't include that. Like, fix the dialogue is not a fair, like, criticism for how you make a movie better. So the movie's dialogue is almost across the board needed another pass. I agree with you, Marcus. It's it's, But it's hard to save. So, yeah, she has flat uh, line readings of, like, lines that shouldn't have been written. She's no worse off than most of the people in this movie at some points. Exactly. She has a line that she says, uh, essentially, that the time dilation or whatever between Mars and Earth, uh, whatever you call the phenomena where time passes – uh, differently on one planet versus another out in space, blah, blah, blah. Um, she mentioned that and she says like very sarcastically, like you think you're signing up for one year, but you're actually signing up for two or three or whatever. Uh, that is the character in a nutshell. She's a depressed drug addict who uh, gets, she's just getting dragged along to this next mission, very much like Snake Plissken. So in a sense, Desolation Williams is a Snake Plissken. Uh, and also she's a snake plissken and she's playing she's a bit role. more of a snake plissken than he is. I feel like other than yeah. him being assigned that role, like she's much more character wise closer to snake plissken. Yes. Except for she's working for the man where a snake plissken couldn't deal with working for the man. So he went into Rob Banks. Um, and I think that the reason that she uh, comes across as so cold is uh, because we're not used to seeing women playing the cold tough distant badass like that's something that has been a male western and i'm not saying western like in terms of like 
geographical quality. I'm saying like Western, like the, the genre, male Western thing. Like you, like when Clint Eastwood comes into a room and just kind of like throws up his arms and sits against the wall, you're like, oh, that's so Clint. Like, even if it's not a great movie, you're like, that's so Clint. But like when it's a Natasha Henstridge thing, you're like, why isn't she being warm or funny? Like, why isn't she doing, why isn't she doing anything? I, I actually love the idea. I don't know if this is true or not, but I think you're actually onto something where they they don't make movies where women are allowed to play the Clint Eastwood so that even seeing a good version of that, everyone's like, is this bad acting? Because I've never seen a woman portrayed like this on screen before. I agree. Like, they honestly, they honestly can't even, like, comprehend the idea of what they're trying to do. Not because it's Natasha Hemstridge. It's just that no no movies ever let women play that character for the most part. Give or take an Ellen Rippey or, a, or a Linda Hamilton. Ellen Rippey? Ripley. And Ripley even. And and Ripley even, like, even in um, Alien... And that's the thing. Alien 3 is her playing that sort of role where she's depressed and subdued and people fucking hate Alien 3. I like Alien 3. I I I love Alien 3, actually. So, is that I think that one of the problems with the dialogue in the movie is that Natasha Henstridge, who does deliver some lines really well and I don't think the dialogue is as bad as you guys are saying except for for the Hispanic and black characters that stuff's awful that is like half the cast though <laughs> see see notice I notice I made the distinction because then it made it sound smaller than, of a problem than it is um, <laughs> it, it, the 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 this the sort of cool future dialogue or whatever I was fine with most of that the problem is, I think the way with Car- with the way Carpenter makes movies is that there is sort of this cool synthwave vibe, this like low level thrumming, like dun 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 dun. When a character interrupts that sort of smooth flow to throw in like exposition dialogue or character building dialogue, you're like, wait, what are you doing? We're we're enjoying this visual piece. Like, what <laughs> what are you doing here? I think the music and the dialogue suffer from the same thing, which is. It was it was really tough to think you were cool in the late nineties and early two thousands because you probably weren't. Uh, well, no, but like you go Definitely back to weren't. like Nirvana and the seventy. Like there is like there there's all these different like icons and pop culture movements and whatever else you call it. Where like it we still look back and go, those were some cool motherfuckers. Everyone that was leading that pop culture revolution in tone and like music and everything else in the late 90s, early 2000s, we all look back and go, oh my God, did I own one of those fucking CDs? Because I owned many of those CDs. I know, me too. But they were all uniformly garbage. And this movie, like, uh, Too Clever by Half, like, that kind of idea of like late 90s, early 2000s punkiness. Uh, informs the dialogue and like the quips in this movie and then informs the soundtrack and it it feels very much like an artifact of its time where you watch a John Carpenter movie from the 80s and while it still feels kind of 80s it also feels out of time which is why yeah the all the quips which is like their attempts on like racial quips are just eye-rolling and bad uh, like you mentioned Peter and then like every music every music cue feels wrong instead of like the holy shit are we gonna escape music it's oh you know it's this it's this terrible like new metal get you pumped up music when it should be a grimmer tone or at least more thrilling 
Because I think the worst thing about the music is the fact that we do get a really good opening piece. Because when this movie opened, I thought like, man, I, that makes me wonder, like when John Carpenter plays shows, does he like bust out the Ghosts of Mars theme music? And it was great. <laughs> but then the rest of the movie was just kind of shitty music. And it was just like, it was disappointing because we got a taste of like a good Carpenter score. I love the opening stuff and I wish it was more of the movie. I think that the rest of the score is fine when it's trying to be thrilling. We can disagree on whether or not the rest of the score is thrilling or annoying or whatever. That's fine. Here's where I'll agree with you. The movie has a central plot problem or a central mechanical problem in that when you shoot the ghosts, you create a spirit that can enter you and people are pumped about shooting the ghosts. Is this your, are these your wedding vows? Like, I mean, I was, I was planning on, are you practicing mostly on, talking on about right ghosts of Mars at my wedding, but <laughs> we'll see. Um, so yeah, so my, my thing is, I think that the like mechanical problem, you're like wondering if they should be shooting the, the zombies or not, which certain scenes, it really makes sense for them. Like the siege sequence, you're like, well, if they don't shoot the zombies, they're going to get the they're going to get their head chopped off. But the problem is they, they keep going that like that John, that John Carpenter, like this is fucking metal. This is so fucking cool. The thing that Aaron's going after, uh, that doesn't work when you're like, Oh, you shot a guy and now his ghost is going to come get you. And it's going to be <laughs> yeah. a very not metal moment when you get taken over. Like it's going to be sad and pathetic. Yeah. Exactly. So it needed like, it needed like that cold John Carpenter creepiness because like, that demonic possession is something that's out of your hands. And because I really want to transition to the stuff that we like, because technically all three of us are uh, fans of this movie at different levels. <laughs> I'm a man that's I'm a man that are that's arguing. Yeah, so I'm a man so, that's arguing so yes. three out of five or more. Yes, uh, but I do want to get into the good stuff. So I'm actually going to use it as a focal point to something that you said, Peter, which is that you like Desolation Williams. And I do want to circle back just because I Ice Cube he was studio mandated because they wanted a star. And that's fine, because Ice Cube is a really good actor. And you know what else he's really good at? You know those quiet moments in this movie and so many other movies where he is like – you can tell he's like a a, a world-weary person who like can still like explain like, here's how I'm feeling and this is what's going on. And how you decide to deal with that, that information is up to you. Like he's so good at that. He's also really good at cocky Ice Cube. And that kind of like probably the the I never saw it, but probably the ice cube that they they wanted for State of the Union Triple X in two thousand four or whatever. And I really wish they would have leaned heavier on that first ice cube. Instead, he really is doing the you know co- cocky, too smart for the room, and he does it really well. It just it tonally it feels completely off from this movie. But Peter, you mentioned you like that. Let's talk about that. I will stop saying negative things about Ice Cube because I do really like him. I just think he plays it wrong in this movie. And then I want to go into a bunch of stuff I really do like. Uh, I don't think Ice Cube is a problem. Ice Cube is a problem at all with this film. Um, I think that what they needed was somebody who's kind of blasé and somebody who's distant and who's just yeah. like, I just need to get the fuck out of here. And then he has a Snake Plissken arc, like we mentioned. And by the end, he like is being sweet with Natasha Henstridge. And it's yeah. not sweetness like I'm trying to fuck you, which there might be a little bit of that in there. Um, they would have made oh. a hot they would have made a hot couple. Let me um, on the table. Yeah. Look, I don't know if Ice Cube wanted to fuck Natasha Henstridge, but like I'm gonna throw this out there really quick. 
Do you think that Jason Statham might have? <laughs> Jason Statham is horny online the whole movie. He would have fucked and anything. <laughs> Jason Statham uh, is this weird. Oh, so he has this weird line. I'll get to it in a minute. Anyway, so yeah, I think I think, I think Ice Cube is is uh, perfectly suitable in this movie. The problem is the mechanical problem that I referenced, where it's hard for me sometimes to feel like, and, and he's. I think he's very badass in the movie. It's hard for me sometimes to totally get behind the badassness when I'm like. Oh, but you being a madman who's going to fucking shoot every zombie you see is going to create 10 demon zombie ghosts uh, that are going to they're going to roam the surface of Mars until they find a host like that is more of the problem, I think, that makes it silly. But I think that I think that he mostly nails it. I think that his um, you don't think he's too big, though, because he's so big and he's so like loud and in charge and like his character is clearly I don't know it, it it feels at odds with with like how would they describe his character and and those moments where he's like playing into it it it's his character feels very tonally confused and that's why I think if he would have played stoic the entire time and just like I just want to get out of here and I don't care about you and everything else I think I think the movie would be that much better for it. But That's true because initially he, he, he is like when we first see him yeah, in the jail cell. He's snake he's, fucking Plissken. He's, he's sitting there and he's like, yeah. And but that would have done that the whole but movie. Then he immediately like starts cracking jokes and being being yeah. smart and stuff. And he starts in a being way that Friday just, Ice Cube. Yeah, he starts being Friday Ice Cube, and it's just it, yeah, it does clash. But in he's a not weird Snake way. Plissken. He's and that happens very quickly. I mean, also because he regroups with his his uh, friends. So he's like... That's true, uh, he does have friends. His Padres, Uno, Dos, Trace. Uh, And these are like old friends. One of them is his brother. Uh, Yeah. And the other two are people he's just close with. He doesn't seem to particularly care about the one that chops his fucking thumb off. That guy is definitely. Oh my like, god! So first of all, I fucking love that scene. I do let's too. let's so use good. let's use this to transition into positive things. But I want to say, I just want to say, final thoughts on Ice Cube is that he is uh, in a different position than Snake Plissken was because he is surrounded by. Uh, he's sort of the uh, the pivot point. It's more of an Assault on Precinct 13 thing. Actually, it's not, because Assault on Precinct 13, Napoleon Wilson is all alone. It's not even that. It's a new thing entirely to Carpenter, even though it seems like both a snake thing and a Napoleon Wilson thing, mm-hmm. uh, where it's the cops meet with the crooks. It's because the crook leader has to like be a leader to the crooks to... Uh, barter with Natasha Henstridge because Pam Greer gets beheaded. So, like, those two are going to head-to-head, and that means that, like, he has to, like, play a different role than Snake Plissken. Snake Plissken never had to be, like, a commanding officer in either of those movies. Yeah, you know, and I'll do a little bit of a mea culpa, because having... I read about the Escape from Mars thing before, and I just watched fucking Escape from New York and Escape from L.A. the previous... Like, last week. The entire time, I... I'm wishing for something that's not on screen, and we've talked about that's not it's not necessarily a fair way to judge movies, but mm-hmm. but like Ice Cube playing a more Snake Plissken type character, I think would have would have improved the movie. But let's let's talk about that guy cutting off his fucking thumb because <laughs> <laughs> that gets- scene is like legitimately laugh out loud hilarious and then all like, the characters are laughing at him which makes yeah. it better well i just yeah, love they the, rarely the do that moment of him actually holding up the can for the girl he was trying to impress and just like kind of smiling just like isn't this sweet 
<laughs> yeah. And while uh, everyone is horrified. Yeah, and I think that the, the, the moment is great because it is a very serious movie, and a lot of the movie is John Carpenter kind of, in a sense, like his Western mode, his sort of like cold classic camera work, and then, you know, like putting a lot of work into like characters and violence like that sort of cold western style camera work uh doesn't is it really conducive to comedy often yeah and so like the moment when he just like there's no music it just holds up that fucking can and his thumb is just bleeding <laughs> you're like oh my god oh my god i didn't expect that and you're like laughing and horrified at the same time which is exactly how the characters are reacting i do think the joke would work better if somebody handed him a plastic bag with his thumb in it and they were like you can sew that back on at crisis because like his thumb is just gone and i'm like guys we have we can we can reattach thumbs right now like i mean you you don't know what future technology is in 2176 you're right it might have it might have terraforming down but they don't know how to reattach a thumb you think they terraformed his thumb back on (laughs) (laughs) i know how terraforming works yeah Uh, well why don't you do like a three-hour explanation on terraforming just to check out the facts all right so terra means earth Forming Thank means you, Aaron. You something explain- I, I believe something you. else. <laughs> so what it means is earth change. Thank you so much. Very good. Uh, I, I let, let me bring up uh, two things, I, little things that I love as well. One, I, lo- like, I don't necessarily like the kind of structure of the movie and how everything is kind of in flashbacks. But I do love the fact that there is a flashback and a flashback and a flashback in this movie. <laughs> No, there's a ton of those. It's like inception level deep. (laughs) Peter Peter and I talked about in in the Mouth of Madness that why that flashback works, how how the framing device works, is that they never keep cutting back for inane details just to remind you that this is a flashback. uh, Because they make you forget that that's even a part of the movie. They don't let you hear. (laughs) No. And, And for even more inane stuff, like, well, we had to think about what to do next. And by God. We did it next. (laughs) And I kind of like it because it's a survival situation. So it's like, I kind of like it because in a survival situation, you're like just collapsing stories. You're like, you have no reason to lie. So your story that you just told me is fact. So like, it's, it's not Rashomon where three people tell or five people ever tell the same story from five different perspectives. It's the opposite. It's like, one person is telling a story and is having like three to five people relate back all of their stories and filter through her. So like, it's like, she's like, I have to accept all this is fact Hmm. and you can sort it out because I told you Jason Statham reported this to me dose or whoever the, 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 other member of ice cubes gang reported this to me like that's something that like kind of works and i think would be way worse if they tried to do a narrative justification for it but like the framing device is cool but it yeah it does create issues if you're thinking about it actively because you're like why is she explaining this story this way and i'm like i actually think the the opposite of rashomon is five people telling the exact same story (laughs) 
Um, but I like the way it, that it's set up and the transitions are because it'll always cut back and you'll see a line that we've already seen and then it you know goes with another person's story. But yeah, there is that weird moment at the end where we see things as it is happening, but then she relates the story differently, which is weird because most of the movie it seemed the opposite way, like she was relating the story and then we would see things like as yeah. if she was saying it out loud. Yeah, the framing device is bad. And in that, <laughs> I think I don't think it's like bad. I just think it's like. It's strange. It, it, it's like not it's, good. It's not. It's just not as like constructed as I would like it to be because I would like to know. I would like a hint that she's like lying to them because that's the sense that I'm getting is that she's like telling one story. And we're seeing his because they do that with Desolation Williams. He says, I went to the station just to get something to eat. And he, and he cocks his shotgun. That's him telling one story to her. That's true. But he is we're being shown a different story so we're being shown, we're being shown what actually happened we're being shown the truth so it, it's almost like people telling stories to each other but we're being told as objectively as possible which does work for a carpentarian sort of perspective this sort of like cold like clean shots of like action happening with very little editorializing i think this framing device is is clearly a framing device that was inserted as part of the edit Shit, we're missing scenes. We didn't get the budget to film this. This isn't working. The studio wants some changes because this this absolutely feels like an like a framing device that was added later to fill in some points. But try trying to move back into some things that are really good here because we, we did as much as I personally said how shitty the the two thousand one era music is. Uh, you know what's not shitty. And is like actually pretty fucking amazing for this movie is it's 2001 era special effects because every other goddamn movie released in 2001 had a plethora of terrible CGI effects. Uh, It was a terrible time for CGI. And when you had anything set in space, it was like, we're going to shove some CGI that we don't need to make down your throat. This one has like a couple of minor CGI moments. Almost everything else is practical effects, which feels insane for uh, a movie of this budget and of this caliber in the year 2001. And it did feel like almost a course correction for Carpenter if his career had continued, uh, where he's like, they gave me way too much fucking money on Escape from L.A. I put in Serpent Snake Plissken and a Jaws Shark and all that shit. This feels like a course correction where he's like, I'm going to shoot in a quarry in New Mexico and we're going to paint the fucking sand red with red food dye. And it's going to look gorgeous. And the movie does does look gorgeous. That design looks really good, especially if you can just get over like the Mars gravity bullshit and the terraforming bullshit, the, the rebreather bullshit. Like as soon as you get over all that stuff, the stuff that like I think of as bullshit nerd complaints that have no fucking yep. value because the movie basically says oh the air is mostly breathable and at that point you should be like yes I'm along for the ride it is five minutes in the movie instead people are like what well they're just some... explain away expo- exposition lines like it's just, just yeah. to get it out and of the way are. it's not a big deal and then there's a fucking bunch of amateur Neil deGrasse Tysons out in the audience <laughs> who are like, who are like, actually, they'd need to be working out the whole time because their muscle mass would be deteriorating. I'm like, yeah, yeah, but then it wouldn't be like this movie, unlike Red Planet, needs to be on Mars. Like 
the the wild west style new colony off earth like there's only like crisy and a bunch of frontier towns like that could only work on a space planet like the space planet or nuclear apocalypse earth yes but they have to be like they have to be like recolonizing which in, in an apocalypse you're like rediscovering stuff it's the fallout thing where you're like this is like we're cutting the land we're making the land like this is true frontier shit this is land that's never been developed in this manner before. I was just going to say, I, I think he writes a nerd complaint because I think the real complaint with those lines are they're treating the audience like we're dumb. And that's something that Carpenter movies rarely do. Like, you don't even need to give us those lines. It's 2176. There's Colony on Mars. Who gives a shit how you're breathing? Like, this could all take place in a dome for all we fucking know. Yeah, yeah we, we don't need one sentence of explanation, let alone like... Okay, so a month ago, we didn't have the rebreathers, but now the rebreathers are going great. I don't care about the science behind this fucking ghost movie. <laughs> like, like you, you, don't, you don't need to do that. A, a grand uh, problem with online reviewing where people think that, like, the goofs page of IMDb is, like, something that you need to fill up for every movie. Actually, that's not how rebreathers work. And actually, that's not how CO2 works. Like, motherfuckers, it is a sci-fi movie. Like, who cares? Yeah, no, it really doesn't matter. Like, unless the, you're the looking only for t- a- The only time it matters, I think, is if if it's not internally consistent with the rest of the movie. Like, yes. if, if, if all of a sudden breathing on Mars becomes a plot point later in the movie, then I think you're fine to go... Well, this is dumb because you just told us they could breathe on Mars with this stuff and now – but you still wanted to so – it's it's like I didn't want to film them with masks but I wanted to do the total recall ending scene and so I just kind of made it where I made a dumb reason why they needed the breathers and then I made a dumb reason why the breathers didn't work. Like that's that's the type of stuff that should make you go, OK, this is dumb. So it's not, it's, it's not that movies can't be dumb. It's that – who, it's 2176. It's a movie with movie, ghosts in it. There, there, there is magic <laughs> and possession. <laughs> as long as a fucking movie is staying, like, true to itself in the world that it's setting up, shut the fuck up. It's a goddamn movie. Thank you. However, the rebreathers do disappear halfway through the movie and then don't They're show up anymore. They're completely gone. That's something to knock but who the movie cares? on. But, it, but it's, 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 it, who cares? The movie at the beginning is like, Breathing on Mars is not a problem because of terraforming. Done. And it is funny because the rebreathers are an afterthought because, like, people will walk out of a building and then, like, take a hit and then say their line. And you're like, well, I mean, like, we don't really need to watch them vape off of the oxygen. It's fine. Yeah, exactly. Um, So, (laughs) yeah, way back, the other positive thing I had to say (laughs) was that I kind of fucking adore the fact that this movie pretty much has the same ending as Super Mario Brothers. It does. It does. It somebody does, comes yeah. in and tosses somebody a gun, and then they're like, "Gotta get back to work." Another, <laughs> we got another adventure, Mario. And it should be noted too that just like Super Mario Brothers, this ain't <laughs> game. Hey, you know, Mars ain't no game, and Ghosts of Mars ain't no game. I gotta say that right now. Um, I gotta say this: like, you're terraforming a planet. You're doing mining. That's serious work. Like, you get a paycheck. That's serious business. You go home to your family. Literally not a game. It ain't no game. (laughs) Um, Marcus, that's a a great call out, especially because we could also call out that this movie ain't no game. (laughs) It ain't no game. So, uh, before we get into final thoughts, 
Um, I did have one last very positive thing I wanted to mention, which is a big part of this movie. We haven't touched on it yet, which is I really think the uh, the whole they mutilate themselves with metal and it's never really like it's not it's mentioned, but it's not delved into too deeply is super creepy. And all the scenes where it actually like features them piercing themselves in weird ways with like ascribing metal to themselves is excellent. Yeah, it's Definitely. it's um, uh, uncomfortable to watch somebody do self-mutilation. And weirdly enough, if, if Carpenter knew in retrospect that he could make this like a creepy movie about like an enemy you can't quite defeat because he'll just like take over your body and a movie that like self-mutilation is, is a really creepy concept, uh, he might have done the movie differently. But uh, we still get those, those creepiness uh, moments. The interesting thing about it is that uh, it kind of this movie does something that Bone Tomahawk does, where it wants to have savages for the western and wants to have Kurt Russell and it wants to have <laughs> Kurt Russell. They both want to have Kurt Russell. That was a, that's a great point. Uh, one got him, one didn't. Uh, but the Bone Tomahawk both want to have savages, but both of them manage to have savages that are uh, not a racist depiction of Native Americans. And that's very interesting because these are like, these are like the metal savages. Like they're like tech savages where they're like forcing like metal through their body and they're like piercing themselves in a way that like would be more so making fun of like punk culture than like Native Americans. Well, the lead, the lead guy kind of looks like Danzig the Martian King. Yes. Yes. And he looks like also Alice Cooper from fucking uh, Prince of Darkness. Alice Cooper albums. Alice Cooper albums like he's they're doing this thing and they're like putting on like white white paint and stuff which is like somewhat reminiscent yes of like certain African tribes that put on white powder and white paint to cover their their skin but like it's also reminding us of other like punk traditions and shit like theater um, which I really I really dig so that's interesting because I actually the the explanation that I thought that he touched on but didn't get into too deeply um is is they were putting paint and metal in their face because they they no longer were themselves like they weren't we see like very quick flash of what they look like and it's like not all the way in focus and all that kind of stuff so i i actually a little like creech yeah a little bit a little bit like creech a little bit like the rancor from return of the jedi I thought it was this idea of they no longer look like themselves and they were trying to modify themselves to to look closer to like what they look like. It's like like some sort of like dysmorphia. Yes. Yes. Your body is not what it is. Your body is not what you want it to look like. Or you exactly. Like. Even the paint, whether I mean, obviously, they're obvious, you know, there they're clearly is some, you know, when you're talking about like people who it's their native land and you're trespassing and you're taking it over and they're not dead and all this kind of stuff. Like there, there's a context of that with. But I thought that that was a piece of them just like trying to modify their bodies in a way that felt closer to who they were. I, I agree entirely. This movie is saying like they're actually aliens, like in a way are just like kind of excusing the, the thing and just taking the iconography without the racial implications, which I think is like as best as you can do to adapt a Western post 1990 that doesn't that has Indians in it. 
I think that's as best as you can do without just ditching Indians and Westerns altogether. Yeah, I mean, what's interesting is that this movie's kind of a Western. Um, <laughs> I mean, it really is. But anyways, these John Carpenter episodes have been amazing. I'm really sad this is the last one. Before we do the real wrap up, final thoughts on Ghosts of Mars. Marcus, you can lead us off. Okay, because I still had a couple of things I wanted to mention, and mostly just because work it in. I think wrap there's a it up with it. I think there's a couple of things that are really interesting like I- ideas in this movie that just aren't explored enough that I would have liked to see more of. Uh, one, the fact that it's kind of like a matriarchal society um, that yes. everything seems to be run by women, and Jason Statham uh, mentions like, oh, there's not a lot of us breeders around anymore. Yeah, but is that just on that? Mars? Is that Earth as well? Was Mars more of like a female? led colonizing or like i was interested in learning more about that but there just wasn't a lot of it there and they keep mentioning a cartel which implies that maybe this matriarchy even though it's a matriarchy uh is being run by a massive conglomeration a massive corporation on earth um, and that's, yeah. that's an interesting idea that they're like, this is not only just a, which is, that's very old West too. The idea of like, uh, we're going to hire 800 people to go settle this land. Like we're going to like sell this land to you for a dollar just because we need somebody to be living out in that state, uh, mostly to be taking land away from Indians, but, uh, we need somebody to be living here. And like, that's like a very, like the idea of a cartel is very like almost like West Indian, trading company like it's like a colonial uh, colonial idea uh and, and it, but yet there's also this like matriarchy in there and i'm like is the cartel also a matriarchy it's that idea of manifest destiny but actually we just want to make money but that's how we sold it for free labor yeah <laughs> exactly they're like manifest destiny but also um we're hey, tame so- in the West. Hey, do you want to come work at the mine? <laughs> Food <laughs> while we're while we're seizing God's plan for all of us, or did you want to starve to death? That's the other thing. Is this movie is sort of a revolution movie because it's they're taking over miners to flip the power dynamics back on the the sources of authority. Crisis. 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 The, the the city on Earth is supposed to be this like center of authority and uh the mind well that wasn't on earth right that was actually on mars wasn't it yeah crises is the center yeah. of authority for mars at least i guess the cartel runs them but um and then also the cops are the the other form of authority so it's weirdly like a revolution from like the biological level up definitely and i was also very interested in what put the martians into their weird little tomb where the door disintegrates with a single touch like that, I was interested in, in having a little bit like that could have used a couple of dumb explanation lines. And that was like, Gary Sinise. This is a direct sequel to Mission <laughs> of Mars covered last month. And it's it's a Lovecraftian idea as well, uh, tapping into all the Lovecraft shit from Prince of Darkness and uh, in the Mouth of Madness and the thing and such. It's a Lovecraftian idea as well, because it's door that uh, they cracked open by fate and then they send in some scientists to check out. And it's got all these uh, strange hieroglyphics and strange uh, languages they can't contr- they can't understand. And they just go up and human curiosity causes them to touch the door. And when they touch the door, it disintegrates. And it's like kind of this great like Lovecraftian mystery. Like you're like, wait, why are they in there? Why was there this curse that bound them within these tombs? Like what 
Yeah, who, who like overtook a... them and put them there? What force was here that actually was able to defeat them and put them away? Yeah, and, and were they were they? Yeah. It, it doesn't seem like they were a noble this force. This movie could be better. <laughs> it, it, no, I think it's a I think it's an interesting question. Like I think it's like something that's that's not explained, but I'm fine with it because I'm like, oh, these must have been really bad if somebody locked them away and oh, yeah. found them. Well, I'm fine with it. I just I was interested and wanted to know more about it just because I thought that was an interesting thing in the movie. Kind of like also with uh, Natasha Hendricks's, uh like drug addiction and that weird drug that she was taking. I was very interested in that as well. And especially when it was able to get a ghost out of her somewhat. Yeah, well, the, the drug she was taking was called uh, Deus Ex Machina. <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah, the the clear. It's, a, it's an interesting thing because, yeah, it... it um, it does help her exercise a demon later in the movie, which we haven't discussed. But Drugs uh, are good, kids. Drugs and are won't. good. <clears throat> but that's like an interesting thing because like uh, hallucinogens have always been associated with uh, demonic possession. Mm-hmm. Like people used to take, uh, you know, shamans used to take like hallucinogens to like face off against the exor- uh, the, the possessed person's demon or like uh, you know, in some cultures, the person taking the possession or taking the hallucinogen would mean that they were being possessed. It was the opposite of ghosts of Mars. So it's like it's a weird, like primal, primal anthropological touch to throw in the movie last minute. And it feels very like Aaron said, like Deus Ex Machina, like, oh, her habit is going to save her here. Like it doesn't feel like <laughs> got to start wrapping up that third act, guys. Yeah, it it doesn't it doesn't make sense entirely, but like it does make sense like from a anthropological perspective. The idea that like you take these drugs to like exercise your demons, like that's an old tradition. Yeah, and I guess I mean if I'm if I'm gonna move into my final thoughts, I think that's that's kind of perfect, just because this movie has a lot of good scenes and a lot of good ideas that it doesn't do enough with. We we talked about another draft of the script, but I feel like picking the parts that Carpenter was really interested in back when he was like, Look, I am interested in quantum mechanics. That is my one idea, and now I'm gonna make a movie about it, and that was that was Prince of Darkness. Like he had one thing he wanted to you read one article, that's what he wanted to talk about, and he figured out a way to work that around. And this one feels kind of bastardized because this was an Escape from Mars movie that got changed into this other movie that then had to add stuff that wasn't about Snake Plissken and all that kind of stuff. And so at the end of this movie, you do it feels half-baked. It, it, it was something that became something else and never fully, you know, never fully like they never they didn't work out how to make this script a not a escape movie, I think. And that's why it feels off. But I mean – it's the last fucking John Carpenter movie you're going to get, basically. And it's still pretty and watchable. It's very watchable, and I mean, it has a lot of fun. good moments. It's worth your time. It's just not a masterpiece. But I would say it is better than, like, his his very, his bottom five of movies, which, again, some of those still pretty watchable. Like, I like Vampires. Memoirs is okay, if not that interesting to talk about. Vampires and um, this have the same problem, where they're kind of like sleepy and sort of like rummaging around, and like if yeah, you, if he you dive just wants the, to do something, it yeah, feels like. it's John Carpenter yeah. leftovers. Yeah, and both of them suffered from budget problems. Vampires way more. This suffered from script problems. Vampire suffers from big budget problems. Yeah, so I mean, it's it's got cool practical th- effects. It has some good John Carpenter moments. You could you could do worse. 
But, uh, you know, I, I don't think it made either uh, Peter Mines' top ten of John Carpenter movies. Oh, no. And it just it just, it just just needs some more time in the in the oven. Well, we say, I say that, Marcus, because I think it did make Ryan's, our guest, when we did the top ten. So, so well. Us, nor, us normies, Peter and myself, not Ryan. Was it one of me. ten John Carpenter movies he had seen? This I think me. that was, I think that might have been the situation. I'm just trying to undermine him publicly on the podcast so I can get into that best friend position. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Aaron is Aaron is trying to uh, dethrone Ryan as my best friend. And what he's going to have to do is take the DeLorean back and be there after my first hand job. Uh, because we, we talked about that on his first guest appearance. <laughs> <laughs> Go back to Southland Tales to hear the tale that I should have been at if I wanted to be Peter's best friend. I mean, I'll hang uh, out after giving you a hand job if that's all it takes. <laughs> I'm not, not one to just beat and run, guy. <laughs> I want to be your bud. <laughs> You're beating buds. Um, beating buds. Yeah, that's, so, so, yeah, that... Um, I don't even know where to go from there. I'm sorry. <laughs> your final thoughts. I'm just thinking about hand jobs now. Um, um, Ghost of Mars is a movie that I have a lot of affection for, but I will recognize that it has big problems. But my argument has always been that... Big problems in Little Mars? What? <laughs> sorry, I said big problems in Little Mars because I need to get those John Carpenter jokes out while we can. That yeah, was pretty good. I'm glad that And I immediately said I'm sorry, both for interrupting and for making a bad joke quietly away from the mic. <laughs> Those two things are you auditioning for the best friend slot. It's just, it's really uh, going well I'm out. So, uh, this movie is something that I've, I've never really said was like top tier Carpenter. It didn't make my top 10 um, of favorite Carpenters. But I think that the film uh, has a lot of pleasures to offer. And I think that like my weird, the weird thing about being like somebody who's like, Hey, that movie's not terrible. It's actually okay. It's like, it's not an exciting position to argue for. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm trying to make it exciting for you folks. So my argument is that this is John Carpenter's zombie space western. And this is him bringing together a ton of his interests. There's a marauding, mindless horde. There's It's a siege movie in its third act. It's got uh, multiple snake bliskins, apparently. Uh, it's a uh, it's a western, obviously. So it's got his sense of of geography and his love for sort of like wide shots being displayed in in, in full. And like that is my my love for the movie. Like it's got problems. Obviously, I find the tribal tribal uh ghosts people uh really cool really creepy the martians really cool really creepy i wish there wasn't a flashback to see what they looked like before and i really wish that they didn't have this weird baby talk language uh apparently that was a problem because of the prosthetic that the the zombie leader had that he couldn't say anything but a's like that's that's (laughs) credited as big daddy mars by the way yeah, that's something that, like, we didn't mention, but, like, that's something that bothered me. The soundtrack doesn't really bother me, but, like, it's a movie that's, like, John Carpenter, his, the last time that he was operating at, like, a nine. Like, him, like, not not in terms of quality, but in terms of, like, effort. And, uh, yeah, I think it's a movie worth checking out, and I think it's a movie that we've proven that is, like, fun to talk about because it is 
such a strange movie. The script is full of ideas and it's such a chewy movie. And then also every five or 10 minutes, there's this big violent scene where people get beheaded in practical effects. There's a lot of really great practical bloodletting effects like saw blades taking off people's heads and limbs getting lopped off. This is a movie where people give do not give a shit about limbs getting lopped off. Like a character's arm gets chopped off and he fucking pulls out a pistol and keeps shooting <laughs> until his head gets taken off. Like this, that's that kind told, of movie. I, like I told you, they they have that terraforming technology for arms. Yes, yes. <laughs> he wasn't even worried about it. All yeah, this terraforming stuff back home. Someone gets their dick cut off. They're yeah. like, fine. I'll get the terraformer. It's fine, baby. <laughs> My final thought is that uh, it's hard to argue that a movie is a is a very fun three out of five with a lot of problems. But like, I don't. I genuinely don't think a lot of the problems in this movie matter. But like, I recognize them. Let's leave it at that. Let's leave it at that. Agreed. Um, yeah, this this was this was the movie we thought was going to be a short talk, and it turned out to be just as long as our other Carpenter movies, which I think tells you uh, how great John Carpenter is as we wrap up this month, and uh, how excited we are to do other John Carpenter related months. This is this is kind of the lesser stuff. We did the thing. Uh, we have a ton more John Carpenter movies to get to peter so i'm very excited i am too um marcus thank you so much for dealing with us um and thank you so much for being on the show we love you buddy yeah i love you guys too this is fun and also probably the longest recording i've ever done uh it's one of our longest this carpenter it's in our top four this month yes this this uh our carpenter month is going long marcus what do you have i mean i know what you have to promote because you do some fantastic work but why don't you tell our audience what you have to promote uh yeah i I have a website crushcelluloid.com uh where i do some writing from time to time as well as uh, a main podcast with a co-host about forgotten movies as well as a side podcast uh devoted strictly to jean-claude Van Damme movies called Jean-Paul Van Damme, of course. Um, and both of you have been on it. Peter is actually just recently on it again. Aaron, I will have to have you back on again very soon as well. It was yeah, so no, I, 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 I had so much fun last time. I would, I would happily come back on again. Yeah, we will set something up. So next month, new month. Feels like Carpenter Month went by so fast. I did message Peter and be like, "Can we just keep talking about Carpenter movies?" Yeah, are we a months? Carpenter podcast? Can now? we cancel? Yeah, can we cancel all of our plans? Uh, tell our all of our guests to go fuck themselves or appear on a John Carpenter podcast. Uh, but uh, that's not what's going to happen. Instead, we are moving. That sounded really negative. Instead of what we wanted, that's not what's going to happen. We're going to have to dig really deep. And uh, just kidding, because next month. We're doing Kill Billies 2, baby. Kill Billies, volume two. Um, We're doing Redneck Horror for August. It's hot. It's sweaty. Let's watch people get murdered with axes. By, by people from a lower income level. <laughs> Ideally. Ideally. We're going to start off with our first Kill Billies, international Kill Billies, because, ladies and gentlemen, there are weird hill people all over the world. Wolf Creek with Amanda Lett. An after- returning guest. Returning, returning guest. champion. And then after that, we're going to have a clowny Kill Billy with a Funhouse by Toby Hooper featuring the brothers Koski. Uh, the the bro- brothers Karamoski. I was going to say, <laughs> the, 
The Brothers Karamowski. You know um, why you were going to say that? Because we both made that jokes on previous episodes. <laughs> this is going to be Dustin Kosky's fifth appearance. First one to get to number five, baby. Uh, I love when, I love when Dustin comes on because he's <laughs> such a grump and then we have such a fun time with him. He's such a good guy. Yeah. Um, he's a great he's a great sport. Great grump. He's a great <laughs> like, grump. Great he's one grump of our best does. grumps. I will continue having Dustin back he on forever. He is the Andy Rooney of podcast grumps. <laughs> I literally, he, he talked shit about George Carlin in the last episode and I thought about it for two days and then I was like, it's going to be a good episode, but can we edit that out? Um, <laughs> I didn't. Yeah, so then then we're actually taking a week break because August is five Tuesdays. Uh, technically, in our bylaws, it says we release episode on Tuesdays. It's anywhere Sunday through Friday, I think, at this point. Mm-hmm. We've never released one on a Saturday. Don't even think about it. Uh, but that's how we that's how we plan them. So uh, the reason I'm saying that, we're going to have two more Killbillies. We're going to have a surprise episode midway through the month. I'm not even going to say what it is yet. Uh, but something that we recorded a couple months ago. It's going to be the start of something uh, bigger. Uh, it's going to be off format a little bit. It's not going to be Killbillies. We'll talk about it later. I'm really excited for it. Uh, and then we're going to continue the month, though. Uh, the next the next week, we are doing Tucker and Dale versus Evil with new guest Carrie Nelson. Oh, nice. We're very excited for him. And then we're rounding out the month with uh, both the original Hills Have Eyes and uh, and the remake from 2006 by Alexander Aja. Yeah, Aha Aja. Yeah, he's a French dude. Uh-huh. So if you are from France, pronounce it how you would. Yeah, it's either Aja or you know Aha. And if you don't like that second pronunciation, then take on me. Take on me. Take on me. Take me home. Just a Peter and me episode. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, that's just uh, we have two movies. Uh, we we tried a little bit uh, the previous month, uh, but just just two movies, and it's a Peter and I episode to round it out. Uh, Peter, fun fact about that one: uh, I've said that I really like the uh, Aja movie. Uh, realized recently, I've never actually seen the original, so. Ooh, that's fun. Yeah, so I'm saving it. So, so anyways, uh, so yeah, so we really good month ahead. I'm I'm really excited for it. a couple movies I've never seen before. Uh, Funhouse, the original Hills Have Eyes. Marcus, once again, thank you so much for rounding out this this month. This is uh, this was such a fun month, uh, and I cannot wait to do versions of this again. More directors, more Carpenter. More everything. Absolutely. And yeah, I, I had to be a part of Carpenter Month. He's one of my all-time yes. favorite directors. Yes. Thank you for joining in this very strange episode and uh, being such a great sport. Um, I think this was completely yeah, well, I, on par for our episodes. And we're going to have you <laughs> back in the future, hopefully, on an episode that is more in format. Yeah. You... Want to do maybe an awkward outro to this? Well, I feel like you've insulted this episode to our guest a couple times now. I, I think like it's going to be pretty good, awkward. I think it's going to be a good episode. I feel like it's episode. really awkward to be like, mm. <laughs> hold on. When did awkward just become slowing down how we talk? <laughs> <laughs> You're <laughs> like, like, seen in a movie, they're very yeah. awkward. It's like, oh no. Oh, let's end the podcast. Let's end the podcast. I'm moving my nice arms weird right now. <laughs> I was fucking-
folks. Thanks for listening to We Love to Watch. If you want to get in touch with us, please reach out to us at either our website, WLTWpodcast.com, or our Facebook group, facebook.com backslash we love to watch and uh yeah reach out to us give us some feedback give us some support uh, suggest movies for the show all that we are also available on soundcloud tune in stitcher and itunes thanks for listening